So we are transitioning into um, 1 Corinthians 12. That's what we're going to get through tonight. The next week we start the kingdom, Kingdom's Companion thing. And then uh, the, first, the second Wednesday in August we come back to 1 Corinthians and we'll do 13 through 16 in the, in the ensuing weeks. And then, and then we have to decide what we're going to do after 1 Corinthians. I know I said originally 2 Corinthians, but if anybody has an idea that's more inspiring than the 2 Corinthians, I'd be happy to do it. Unless it's a book of numbers. I, I could tell the donkey story, but other than that, I'm not sure. So, anyway. Uh, so, remember that this just flows right from chapter 11. We're looking at uh, problems that are occurring in the Corinthian church. And this problem now, chapter 12, deals with how they are practicing, manifesting, talking about, thinking about, and teaching about spiritual gifts. So Paul has quite a bit to say about this as well. And I'm going to break it up into just two big, big parts. So we'll do the first 13 verses and then the next 14 verses. So Paul writes, now concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that you were pagan, when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Uh, Another way of of saying the utterance of wisdom is simply one is given discernment. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. Don't we all have faith? Yes, but this is uh, the type of faith that can be, in a sense, a testimony for others to be able to strengthen their faith. It's a particular faith that other people marvel at and admire. And I've run into that as well in the church. I've looked at, I'm a pastor and yet I look at people in the church and I, and I really, as I get to know them, I think, wow, that, that kind of faith. I wish I had that kind of faith right there, you know. So uh, faith in the same spirit to another gifts of healing by one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between the spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Are those all the spiritual gifts? Anybody? No, there there are more spiritual gifts, and if we have time at the end, I'm going to read you those other gift lists that are in Ephesians, Romans, and 1 Peter. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of, of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit all were baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So... Uh, that first paragraph 
I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by, by mute idols. So the word uninformed, another word is ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. And again, what's happening here is this is a reference to the fact that many Corinthian Christians are coming out of this pagan temple worship culture and practices from those temples don't apply in the church, but they keep wanting to bring practices from the pagan temples into the church, the feasts, the political debates, all that stuff. And now they're trying to um, bring in this idea of how we handle our abilities and talents as well. Uh, and there's no pantheon of gods in the church of Jesus. And so Paul has to also straighten them out on the fact that they're not worshiping the God of this and the God of this and the God of this, which is going to help them to do this and this and this. But rather there's one spirit, there's one God, there's one Lord, and all are in this one. So he's trying to, he's trying to help them understand that too, that there is one God manifest in the Holy Spirit who distributes the gifts to the members of one body, which is of Jesus Christ, the church, of which he is the head. So that's why he introduces this part that way. He's trying to get them to understand, get, get rid of this pantheon, get rid of this uh, idea that you, and you'll see many of these other ideas that, about spiritual giftedness that they will manifest later that Paul is trying to correct. But he's saying, you got to just get rid of all of that old temple thinking when you come in here and, and start to engage in these spiritual gifts. And then it's really interesting in verse 2, Paul uses the word idols, which is a common word, idol or idols in the Bible. But here it's modified by the word mute, which is not that common, but he's making a specific point here. And I want to ask if anybody would like to have a little discussion or talk about or contribute as to why it is that Paul specifically points out mute idols. What, does, what, what is a mute idol? One that can't communicate, right? Can't talk, okay? Why, an, an idol is a false god, right? Why would you want your idol, your false god, to be mute? Because it's false, but why, practically speaking, why would you want your god to not be able to talk to you or speak to you or communicate to you? Why would that be an advantage? What? Okay, so wouldn't it be wonderful to worship a God that never talks back to you, that never tells you you're wrong, that never tells you don't go down there, go down here, that always affirms through silence everything that you're thinking, everything that you desire? Wouldn't that be a wonderful God to worship? Yeah, you be you. That's exactly right. Meism. Yeah. And so what Paul is saying is we don't have a God like that. We have a God who has communicated to us. And not only has the God communicated to us, but he's also come to us in the form of Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's saying so. And, and here's the other thing about a mute idol. If, if you have a God who can never communicate with you, never can talk back to you, never can tell you you're wrong, who's really God? You are. It's exactly right. So Paul is saying none of this here. 
you're not God, these idols aren't God, they're not helpful, you're going to get wisdom and you're going to get direction and you're going to get pushback from the real God and it's all going to be good. Okay? So you get to control these mute idols. And that's the gods that they were worshiping in the Corinthian temples. They, 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 would, they were so oblivious about whether or not the God was mad at them or not because the God would never speak to them that they just they, they used to offer sacrifices even if they didn't think they had to because they could never be sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's like you're constantly behind. Anybody ever feel like they're constantly behind? In this world, I know most of us do. There's always something else to do. But that's what it feels like religiously to constantly have to offer sacrifices because you have no idea whether or not you're in good with the God. But it is convenient when we can conjure our own gods. And it is, and Luther wasn't the first one to say it. Augustine said it first, but he said, you know, God created us in his image and we've been returning the favor ever since. So let's also understand what it is that the Corinthians primarily used their gods for. So primarily, what did they use their gods for? Now, one of your answers might be, well, so that they would bless them in whatever area, whether it was um, love or sex or harvest or weather or whatever it is, so that they might be blessed. But even more than that, they tried to use the gods for something else. Anybody know what that is? Uh, It's a form of that. They used the gods. In their mind, they were using the gods to try to curse others. Anybody that they perceived as their enemy. Okay? So I know that David in the Psalms prays, you know, that he has enemies. And, but he says, I, I hope that you, take, you will do something about that. Even, even in his battle with Saul, he has an opportunity to kill Saul, but he, he doesn't do it. And he says, I, I can't be that judge for you. It has to be up to God. But they were specifically offering sacrifices and telling these gods to go and curse, harm, uh, not protect, but harm others. And we don't see really, we don't really see anything like that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, what we're, do, what we're told to do is to pray for uh, others. We're to pray intercessory, oral, pray intercessory prayers for others. We are to love our enemies. We're called to love, serve, encourage, and gently correct others. So again, very, very different than what the Corinthians would like to do in their church. Also in this section of 13 verses, we get insight as to how the Corinthians were misusing and abusing what we might call the special effects gifts. Anybody know what I mean by the special effects gifts? Some, some people have referred to them as the special effects gifts. Speaking in tongues and prophecy. Okay, yeah. So speaking in tongues and prophesying. So we need to talk a little bit about this. He does say, Paul says, these are gifts, okay? But we need to make sure that they're properly contextualized, as would Paul want them to be. So first and foremost, let's talk about sensationalism. When I say sensationalism, I don't mean like making a big deal out of something. I mean sensationist. Cessationist, meaning um, there are some... Uh, biblical scholars who say that some of the spiritual gifts ceased with the death of all the original apostles. So by the end of the first century, 
speaking in tongues and prophesying were no longer legitimate spiritual gifts. It's a minority position, but there is that uh, theological position out there by some scholars. And they, they argue rather, in some cases, convincingly for that. And they have strong biblical arguments for that. I believe John MacArthur is a cessationist, if you've ever heard of John MacArthur. Okay. Um, I'm not a cessationist. I believe that those gifts still exist. I, I, will, I will say that. Um, and so these gifts can still be distributed by the Spirit. Can you feel a butt coming? <laughs> there is a quite large butt coming in my own uh, view of this. Although I'm not a cessationist, I have only ever seen these gifts practiced in totally unbiblical ways. Okay? For instance, if being gifted by the Holy Spirit for, say, tongues comes from the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual gift. If that is true, why are there churches that actually teach classes on how to learn to speak in tongues? We're going to teach you how to speak in tongues. If it's a spiritual gift, how are you going to teach that? I don't really understand that, other than the fact that they have a theological issue. Okay? Jesus tells us to repent and be baptized in order to be saved. Paul tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. And yet, we are told by some of these same churches that you're not really saved until you receive something called the, anybody know? Second blessing. That's exactly right. Until you receive the second blessing. And evidence of the second blessing is that you can now speak in tongues. And that's when you're really saved. So I don't know if, if you're in some sort of a spiritual purgatory. I don't know what it is, okay, that happens to you if you claim Jesus but can't speak in tongues, okay? And then, and then here's, I think, one of the biggest challenges I have. Whenever I've been around people who are speaking in tongues, there has never been somebody present to interpret it for other people. That's one of the guidelines or admonitions or commands that Paul gives us is there has to be somebody there to interpret so that other people can be blessed by what is said in the tongues. You follow that? I, that's never happened. People are just speaking in tongues around me and I'm like, where's the interpreter? You know, I'd like to know what's going on. Who's saying what? How can I be blessed by this? Okay. So that's a problem as well. Then there's prophecy. Now we've talked about how Genuine biblical prophecy, generally speaking, and there are prophets today who practice it this way, which is good, is, is the, the, very, the very simple, wise approach of being able to look at somebody's direction in their life or in a particular situation, and they're going here, and God says, you got to go here, and you, the prophet, come along and say, look, according to God's word, you're going this way. This is what's going to happen to you. And then it happens to them, you're a prophet, but all you're doing is applying God's word to a situation. If you know God's word, you should be able to do that sometimes. That's biblical prophecy, but there's another kind of prophecy too. And this is the prophecy that people who believe in this gift of prophecy practice, and that's the idea that they know what's going on everywhere, what's going to happen everywhere, and they get to tell you about it. 
So I've experienced these people as well. So I feel like I'm in pretty good touch with God. I feel like he pretty well gives me, I can follow his direction. I've always fascinated when somebody comes up to me and says, God told me to tell you that he has something for you to do. Well, why did he tell you? Why hasn't he told me? And it's always something that benefits that person and no one else. Okay? That's what's really fascinating about it. Okay? So, there are so many prophets today. And here's another another, uh, characteristic of these kinds of prophets. They're self-appointed. Nobody's come along and said, man, I think, I, do you realize that you're a prophet? You've been practicing the spiritual gift of prophecy. You realize? No. They're, they're just people who kind of wake up one day and go, I'm a prophet. I'm going to start telling people what to do. And they can't argue with me because I'm a prophet. I'm God's prophet, you know. I'm telling you, I know some of you are like, really? Yes. Yes. Okay. So here's my favorite story about that. I was teaching a uh, continuing education class at GCU on Christian leadership and I had 15 people in the class and I had two people in the class and on the first day of class I always try to do like an icebreaker and a get to know you and you know I put a bunch of questions on the board and you have to answer the questions and it's just a way of for all of us to get to know each other and these two people came in and before we even started class started explaining to me that they hold the office of prophet at, um, what's that big church on Cave Creek? What? Dream City. Dream City. That they, they own, they each are, uh, uh, have, are, are in the office of prophet at Dream City. Okay, they're prophets. And, and you need to understand that we're going to tell you what our grades need to be in this class. And they were serious. <laughs> they were dead. You can't grade us. We're God's people. We will grade ourselves and let you know what the grade is on these assignments. I'm like, well, this is not sustainable. <laughs> and it wasn't. They were gone after the first class. It was just, I just was like, what? Really? <laughs> okay. And man, I'll tell you, that first class was miserable too because they never shut up. They just, they just wouldn't, I mean, they wouldn't let anybody else, they, they were awful. They was, so, okay, maybe my experiences are negative with these special effects um, gifts, but that's, those are the experiences that I've had, okay? So I also see it that, that these prophets, these self-appointed prophets, they use this gift as a way to try to control others, okay? I, I had one at, um, I had another one at, um, Paradise Valley Community Church when I was there and it was hard to have a conversation with him at least it was awkward to have a conversation with him because you would talk to him and before he would he would talk in, you know how you go back and forth in a conversation before he would talk he would stop and close his eyes and his lips would move a little bit and then he would open his eyes and he would say to you what he was going to say to you. Finally, I said, why are you doing that? Well, I can't talk to you until God tells me exactly what to say. So he's waiting for God to tell him exactly what to say. It was like, yeah, okay, this is not sustainable either, I don't think. Okay. And by the way, he was very interested in trying to control me. Okay. 
So all of this stuff, Paul tries to straighten all of this out and more as we're going to see in the following verses. So um, verses 14 through 31, actually 17 more verses, 18 more verses. Verses 14 through 31, uh, as there is only one spirit distributing gifts, there is only one body that has many different needed members with a members-oriented manifestation of these gifts. So that's what Paul does now. Again, this is a long slog, but I think it's helpful to read it all together, and then we'll kind of come back and talk about it. So he says, for the body, and now he's using this metaphorical approach. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. Our members of our body would be our arms, our hands, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our feet, whatever. Okay. The, the body of Christ also does not, does not consist of one member only. In other words, not everybody is the same type of member. Okay. But of many members. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Now, I know this might be hard to imagine, but Paul is actually kind of doing a comedy routine here. I know we're looking at this going, that's not the greatest comedy I've ever heard in my life. He's no Brian Regan, but for them, this was actually comical. He's, it's hyperbole, it's exaggeration, and it's, it's meant to be funny. It's meant to point out the absurdity of the way they were acting in the church. Where am I? Let's see. That may get any less part of body. If the whole body were an eye, where is the sense of hearing? Um, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. As he chose. He's arranging these gifts. If all were a single mem- member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow uh, the greater honor, and our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. So in the first paragraph, Paul is talking about people who... um, our current vernacular would be their esteem is too low. They're, they're worried that they don't have the right giftedness, so why even be a part of the body? Okay? In the second paragraph that we're reading now, he's saying here's the other problem. So that's a problem. You're gifted, and you should feel like you're a part of the body. Here's, here's another problem, though, that he's dealing with in this paragraph, is, the, is the, the, the problem of somebody saying, I have a much better spiritual gift than you. Why don't you just be quiet and go somewhere else? We have no need of you. Okay? But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, Second prophets, 
third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Uh, so those last few verses where he's asking, are all apostles, are all prophets, do all speak in tongues? That's a rhetorical question, and the answer, of course, is no. He's assuming that they know that the answer is no. Not everybody's going to be a prophet. Not everybody's going to speak in tongues. Not everybody's going to be able to do healing. Not everybody can teach. But then he says, he ultimately says, here's your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is that you're not being guided by the more excellent way, which then flows into chapter 13, which we'll get to in August sometime. But that's the love chapter. That's when we're going to talk about love. So to close out tonight, let's talk about the rest of this chapter and then maybe even look at some of these other uh, gift lists. So like I said, this section is filled with humor. And then we have this huge problem with gift envy. Um, I admit that I look at people in the church and have for 30 years or whatever it is, and, and I'll say, wow, I wish I could do that the way that person does it. Now, it's one thing to say that, but it's another thing then to be driven by envy or jealousy because of it. So there's, there's this line between admiration and celebration and envy and jealousy. And we have to be very careful not to, not to get, get too far over that line into envy and jealousy. There are going to be people who are better than you at stuff. <laughs> and it's not necessarily them. Because God is, uh, Paul is very clear that God is the one who gives these gifts and so it's the way God has chosen to show his favor to one person and the way he's chosen to show his favor to another person. And we're going to have to be okay with that. So while it is hard sometimes, I mean, I, uh, I love, like Luke Simmons, our pastor at Gateway, who's now also really, he's kind of the lead pastor now over Redemption Arizona along with Tyler Johnson. Um, but Luke is tremendously gifted at administration and organization. He's way more organized and systematized than I could ever be. And, and I love that about Luke, and, and I admire that about Luke. Uh, he's so good at it that he's been able to... Uh, it, it's, been a, it's been a blessing to his ministry, and he's even been able to use that as a way to, to teach others in conference settings, which is great. But I can also tell you that I'm not wired to be an administrator or to be as organized as he is. <laughs> so it's probably a blessing that God hasn't given me that gift. God has shown me a favor in the sense that he didn't gift me in that way. So there's Luke. Now, then there's um, somebody who used to be with Redemption, who, by the way, for some reason showed up Sunday morning here. I don't know if anybody noticed that. I don't know. Anyway, Ricardo Stewart used to be our pastor at Redemption Tempe. And then he became a college football coach in Nevada. And he showed up here on Sunday morning. So apparently he's back and he's living in Phoenix again. We've been texting. But 
Um, Ricardo is a naturally gifted, spirit-filled speaker. Has anybody heard him speak? He's just, he's just incredible. You know, the guy, uh, God has gifted him in a special way. Very, very much, you know, Tom was gifted also that way too. They're very different in the way they speak, but both of them are very gifted. Now, I could see myself falling into that envy trap with Ricardo, though, because I like speaking. And I look at Ricardo and I go, man, he's really good, you know. So I could see that happening. Um, I, I fully admit that early in my Christian life, when I first uh, started to get to know Tom, I, I had tremendous envy for how well Tom could communicate. And then when I finally got past the idea that I, I needed to be another Tom and I could just be myself, that's when the envy went away. And that God has, you know, uh, gifted me in a different way. Um, some of you remember Sean Myers. Uh, it's not listed in any of the gifts uh, listings, but God apparently gifted Sean Myers with a boldness that he has not gifted many other people with. And he's really good at that. So that, those, are, those are really beautiful things. So there's the problem of gift envy. Then there's the problem of lording your gift over others. And I've talked about uh, talked about that a little bit already, but that was a big thing that was going on in the Corinthian church. I'm really good at this, so I'm better than you. That simple. Okay, and of course that would create gift envy <laughs> in people who had the lesser gifts or they weren't gifted in a in a way that got as much attention or could be up front or whatever that is. You know, I wish I had a voice like Tyler Thompson. Yeah, right. So so this idea of lording gifts over... So in the same way that they were sort of lording their feasts over people who didn't have anything to eat, they're all, they also lording their gifts and talents over people who, who don't seem to have the same giftedness. And, and I will tell you, if you've ever heard of Larry Osborne, he pastors a large church in the San Diego area about 15,000 people. It's just slightly bigger than Redemption Arcadia. Um, so he's written several books. And in his, uh, I would say, the best book he's ever written, and it was actually Tom's favorite, all-time favorite book. It's, it's a book called A Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God. Has anybody read it by Larry Osborne? So one of the things I like about the book is that um, he has short chapters like seven to nine pages. So somebody who was educated at North Phoenix High School, I can handle seven to nine page chapters. You know, I don't get distracted or anything. I can really focus. Anyway, um, towards the beginning of the second half of the book, like chapters 16 to 19, he's got four different chapters that tackles this very problem that I'm about to talk about. This idea that some people are gifted by God in a certain area with a certain drive and a certain ministry and they're really good at it and then they begin to determine that everybody else in the church has to be gifted in the same way have the same passion in the same way and we all have to do this ministry and this is the only ministry this church should be doing and it's a big problem and I one of the things I liked about this book was that he tackles that problem and he very simply says, listen, I don't have any problem telling somebody who wants me to take the church in a direction that 
that affirms their giftedness take all 15,000 people in that direction, I have no trouble telling them, I'm glad you are passionate about this. I'm glad that you're gifted in this area and you should go and do this ministry, but you need to understand that your passion is not my passion. Your passion is not required to be my passion. My passion isn't your passion. God has gifted me and given me a passion for something else. And so we can do that together, but we're going to be going and doing our own things. But it is disruptive to the body if you constantly go around saying, this church needs to be more like me. See that? And that was going on in Corinth, and that still goes on today. So I'll tell you another story. I don't know if I've told this story. I'll tell you another story. If I have, just humor me and pretend you haven't heard it before. So um, we used to do Celebrate Recovery at, at, at PVCC. Do you all know what Celebrate Recovery is? It's a 12-step type program for addictions, any addiction. It can be alcohol, drugs, sex, tobacco, whatever it is, power. Anyway, but it's a 12-step recovery program that is is rooted in biblical concepts, not, not the way um, the, the, the other 12-step programs do it. And so I had a guy who came in, and he was a recovering alcoholic and doing really well. And he said, this is the ministry that got me off drinking and got me dry, and I'd, I'd, I'd like to be trained in it and start that ministry here. And I said, okay, sounds good. So he did it, and he built a team, and he started doing Celebrate Recovery on Thursday nights at our church. And then he went away to a, um, and he was very gifted in it. Um, and then he went away uh, to a conference, a Celebrate Recovery conference. And the thrust of the Celebrate Recovery conference was uh, your church, where you're attending and you're doing Celebrate Recovery, should not just offer Celebrate Recovery, they must become a Celebrate Recovery church. Their sign should say, for instance, Redemption Arcadia, a Celebrate Recovery Church. Their stationery should say, Redemption Arcadia, a Celebrate Recovery Church. And they just pounded away on this. Okay, And so he got back, he made an appointment with me, and he came in, and he pounded away on me for about an hour about how this has to happen. We have to do all of this. And I was going... No, we're a gospel church. We're not a celebrate recovery church, you know, but that's that idea, you know, whatever I'm passionate about, the entire church has to take on that identity. That's not how a body works. That's not how a body functions. Okay. If my ears start to take on the identity of my eyes, I'm never going to be able to hear anything again. I'll see really well. But I won't be able to hear anything, and I'm going to miss hearing stuff, okay? Especially heart, all right? I just admit, all right? So same thing. If my eyes take on, the, take on the passion of my ears or the giftedness of my ears, I'm in trouble. I can't drive anymore or other stuff, I suppose. But you see how that works? Okay, so that's really, really important to understand as well. So Paul is saying, look, there has to be this diversity in order for there to be a body. A church that has only one nose, or a church that uh, only has a nose, is no body. Now, it's going to be a great church for smelling, but it's not going to be able to get anywhere. Okay? And, and here's the thing. 
A lot of people, now Paul doesn't go into this, I'm taking Paul's metaphor a little bit further, Uh, but a lot of people in the church are are gifted in the way that um, elbows and pinky toes are gifted. We don't give those gifts a second thought until they're not working anymore. Right? Could you imagine going through life with no elbows? You, you, okay, you'd have to have somebody else feed you. Or you'd have to figure out a way of spilling the food on the counter and then eating with your face, okay? And I know it's just a pinky toe, but it's incredibly important to balance. Okay, tr- seriously, go home, cut off your pinky toe, and see how, how, how well you can... I'm kidding, don't do that. But it is really important to balance and walking and running. I know, it just, it's, that, it's got a terrible nail on it that's really hard to cut and take care of, and it's, it looks ugly and it gets corns, and it's an awful appendage, but it's really important, okay? <laughs> so it, if, you, if you lost your pinky toe, you would miss it. I know they're kind of boring. Just try to get along without elbows or pinky toes. And there's other stuff too, okay? So we need to remember also that Paul makes this point. The purpose of the gifts is for building up and encouraging the body. It, the purpose of the gifts, not for personal glory, not for esteem, and not for supremacy. Okay? That's his point. Now, let me finish by just giving you some other gifts. Okay, here you go. Paul writes in Romans 12. For, the, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. See, here you go. Paul is again telling the people in Rome, listen, if you're gifted a certain way, that doesn't mean that you're better than anybody else. Okay? For as uh, in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, as individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. To the one who exhorts or encourages, in his exhortation. To the one who contributes, in generosity. To the one who leads, with zeal. And to the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So there's another list of the gifts. By the way, um, leadership is a gift. Now, uh, John Maxwell wrote a famous book on leadership. Anybody remember the name of it? It's the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. So... Here's what, this is a very scientific approach to leadership, and it's a great book. It's really helpful. I've read it. If you're interested in leadership, you should read it. But it's a scientific approach to leadership, okay? If you practice these 21 laws of leadership, you will become a better leader, but you won't necessarily become a great leader. You'll just be better than you were. <laughs> That's all. So you'll move up a notch or two, Okay? But actually being a leader, being given that gift by God, is something that God can do in somebody. There are some people who are just gifted as leaders. As leaders. They have an instinct. They, they, their timing is perfect. They know when to say exactly the right thing and how to say it. That's not something you can necessarily teach. 
in a book about leadership. Okay, there's lots of books out there on leadership, but one thing that uh, these leadership books can't teach is how to be gifted in leadership. So leadership is not just a a science, but it's also an art form. It is, okay? So he he talks about uh, leadership, and then he talks uh, here about uh, the one who contributes, let him do generously. Now, this doesn't let people who don't give anything to the church off the hook. But you also need to understand that there are people in the church that God has actually gifted them in such a way that that's that's their part of the church is giving. And it's good that the church has those, that giftedness in the church, that that people who are going to give so that ministry can be covered and ministry can be done. You know, there's a couple ways to look at it. You've heard of the 80-20 rule, right? 20% of the people give 80... uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 20% of the people give 80% of the money, okay? Now, Gordon Alport, who's a Harvard uh, scholar, a number of years ago decided to test that to see if it's actually true, and he found that it's really not true. It's more like 90-10 or (laughs) 85-15. That's the reality. But so there's, there's that idea that we sit around going, you know, if everybody could give the way they should. But the reality is, is that not everybody can give the way the biggest givers give. And aren't we glad that God has blessed the bigger givers? And that that's their giftedness and that's what they can do. Okay, so Paul even acknowledges that here. Then there's Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 through, se- 4, 4 through 7 and 11 through 16. He writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You get the idea that there's one, right? <laughs> okay. But the grace given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Now, starting at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. Shouldn't we all tell people about Jesus? Yes, but there are some people who are really gifted at it. They're just better than other people. I'm a little envious of that one too. Okay? The shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God into mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by every human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up up in love. A church is never going to grow unless there are many members with diverse gifts all doing their thing. Okay? And he says the point of the giftedness is for the encouragement, the equipping, and the building up of the church. That's what it's for. It's not for individual glory. Uh, last one, 1 Peter chapter 4. Let me see if I can find 1 Peter. I'm pretty sure it's right before 2 Peter. 
All right, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God that God supplies in order that every, in everything God may be glorified for the, through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So Peter also says, look, the purpose of the gifts is for service and to glorify God. It's not for any individual glory. And we should, we should be able to and willing to celebrate the giftedness that people have in the church and that, and that they bring these gifts to the church so that we're all better off. I think that's a great, great thing. So, that leads us into chapter 13, Paul's famous treatise on love. Many of you know that this passage, or chapter 13, part of chapter 13, is often read at weddings, which is fine. I do a ton of weddings. I've done more than 500 weddings. Probably half of them, somebody has gotten up and read part of 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm fine with that. Um, But the context of chapter 13 is actually not romance. (laughs) It's, it, the context is in how we treat each other on disputable matters of conscience, which Paul has been unpacking for us in, verse, in chapters 8 through 10, and then in these challenges that they have also in chapter 11 and 12. So the divisions that are hurting the church, the disputable matters of, of conscience. And so context is really important to understand that about why Paul moves into this treatise on love. So I want you to think about that context for the next nine months or whatever it is until we get back into 1 Corinthians. So that'll be in the middle of August, okay? All right, let me pray. Thanks for being here tonight. Remember, next week we start the Kingdom's Companion series, which, uh, or Bible study, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. Father God, thank you for your word and its truth, and thank you for... Um, Uh, this teaching on the gifts, and I pray that we would be filled with your spirit, that we would know what our gifts are, and that we would exercise them, uh, not only in the church community, but just simply uh, for the benefit of all others who are around us. So we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, see you Sunday.